0: wrapping up our series, Glory Through Anguish, which has been a, a series through the, a portion of the book of Luke, uh, specifically the Passion Week. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at the beginning of that week, what is normally the first sermon in that uh, in, in the series leading up to Easter, and that is the triumphal entry and some of the um, things that we have surrounding that. Um So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their colts, their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we're going to skip ahead. In in fact, I'm going to, we're going to pause there. We're going to pause there because we'll, I want to pick this apart before we move on to the rest of it. We see here in the triumphal entry, this incredible I wonder it's 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 fascinating how the people the people cried out you know it was fulfilled prophecy whether or not they really realized what they were witnessing or a part of you know here we see the coming of the son of man into the holy city The 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 opportunity for the kingdom of God which we know would be rejected Um, as we, as we've just studied over the last few weeks, we know that they would, you know, they, they they did not know the time of their visitation, that this would, they would reject their King. But here in this, in this scene, he is, he is riding into Jerusalem. He is being heralded by his disciples. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is, it is a very powerful scene that, that, um, that fulfilled prophecy, um, Clearly, some people understood to some degree what was being said. Uh, the Pharisees clearly understood that this was a um, this was a, a claim of deity when especially when Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Uh, that's likely a reference to uh, Habakkuk chapter two. And man, that's a hard one to turn to because it's so small and, mixed in there with the minor prophets and we don't I guess we don't really have to turn there but there's a reference in there about the stones the very stones of the wall of Jerusalem crying out we see throughout scripture references to creation calling out um, in praise its creator Uh, uh, psalm 19 verse 1 um, the heavens declare the glory of god and the the uh, I only know the firmament i don't know what the uh other translations, but you know the the sky the stars show his handiwork um, which always confused me because firmament seems like it would be like you know the firm ground but it's not it's like the sky and the stars and stuff i always always get mixed up on that but um but we see throughout throughout scripture another place that we see it is is romans chapter one if you if you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 1, we see reference to creation itself. We'll pick, it up in, we'll pick it up in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The testimony of creation calling out praise to its creator is powerful. It, it, it's so powerful, in fact, that according to Paul in the book of Romans, it's enough that men are without excuse simply by having creation to observe. even someone who lived their entire life without scripture. think, think about this because this is, a, this is a difficult thing for 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 some people there's always this, this hypothetical question about well what about what about the you know the, the person who grew up in the jungles of the Amazon and never got the opportunity to hear the gospel, shouldn't they get a pass and get into heaven? Well according to Romans 20 or Romans 1, verse 20, uh, the the answer to that question is a resounding no. They are without excuse. How much of how much of scripture would they need to hear and understand in order to be saved? Um, I don't have an easy answer to in this particular hypothetical, but I do know that if they're not even acknowledging God, the Creator God, um, certainly not. They're without excuse. And so th- th- this this um, this triumphal entry as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and and the people are 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 saying, I, I don't even know if they realize they're like quoting from Isaiah: "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." And Jesus says to the Pharisees, if these did not, then the very stones would cry out. It is is powerful. And the the Pharisees understood when he said that he is claiming to be God. We we may not be so aware of that and we might read over that and not realize that that is yet another claim by Jesus that he is God. Another thing I always think of in, in this idea of of the stones crying out the idea of, of, creation testifying about its creator is that we made in God's image are the only thing in creation that chooses not to do that. And that is, um, so often to our shame. It is also, it, it is, it is part of the, the condition brought about by sin. That we, we have a choice. We choose. God didn't make us robots. God didn't make us, uh, mindless beasts that, that just automatically did what, what God designed us to do. Uh, we choose, and unfortunately we often choose wrongly, not to worship our Creator. And yet all the rest of creation does. All, and, and, and when you, when you put that in context, all the rest of creation that's not made in the image of God, Worships God. And the one thing in creation made in God's image chooses not to. That should convict us. That should convict us, uh, very strongly. There's, there's all kinds of, of, neat, uh, little neat things in, in the story of the triumphal entry. The fact that he sits on a cult that the Bible says no one had ever sat on. I don't know if you've ever worked with horses. Or donkeys, or you know, whatever it was, I, I guess, you know, it, it may have been a donkey, it, it may not have been a horse, but it was some sort of horse-type creature. It really doesn't matter. I did get to spend a couple of summers uh, pretending to be a cowboy in upstate New York at, the, at Word of Life Ranch, and that was, that was, oh man, I would do that again in a heartbeat. Um, but the, the one year in particular, they brought a bunch of, of, this, this, Family that owned a ranch out west would provide all the horses for the, the horsemanship program. We'd teach kids how to ride. And um, and one year, they, they brought a, a whole bunch of mares with, with, with young colts and fillies. All, all baby horses, I'm telling you. Baby horses have fur that is as soft as a puppy. I am not kidding. It is, oh man, they are the greatest thing. But they are ornery, let me tell you. You do not turn your back on those things because they'll come up to get pets and then immediately turn around and kick you or try to bite you or anything. They are absolutely stinkers, but, but but so much fun. But also you realize, you know, the the idea of breaking a horse is it's a whole process to break the will that the, the free spirit of this horse, because if you're, if you're going to sit on the back of this thing that is way stronger than you and more powerful than you, and, and you're, if you're sitting on it, you're at its mercy. You can't have it doing whatever it wants. You, you have to be able to control this beast. It's not a robot that you're sitting on top of. And so, and so for Jesus to sit on the back of a colt that no one had ever ridden I, like it's just one of those things it's just mentioned there in scripture and then that's it but like anybody who's worked with horses knows oh that's that's a literal miracle right there because you cannot do that um, it just doesn't work like that uh, for the rest of us um, but i think the one who can command the wind and the waves um, probably didn't have any trouble commanding his own the rest of his own creation also, just the, the 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 powerful miracle of he, he didn't he hadn't sent ahead and bought this thing and it was waiting for him. This belonged to someone. And he just said, if anybody asks you, just say the Lord has need of it. To me, this is and I'm, I'm interjecting my my own thoughts into onto scripture here. But one of the things that jumps out of that to me is this powerful reminder that all of the things we have. Actually, belong to God. We are stewards of His creation. That that goes, you know, from the, the 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 slightest things like our money to the big things like our children, and everything in between. It's all God's. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He owns the hills. And oh, it's 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 tough as it's tough as a parent, you know, and you get get beautiful young kids and you feel like it's all on you and granted we have a lot of responsibility as parents to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. but ultimately they will choose on their own whether to follow him or not and they will make choices uh, much like I did um, you know which may or may not be honoring to God. And at the end of the day they belong to God. And and as we have all probably witnessed, sometimes that means that God will take them from us before we are ready. But this, this whole, and it seems like a strange place to go from the uh, untying of a cult. But it is a reminder that all things, everything we have is God's. And we are stewards of it. You know, we, we, just, we don't think of our, we don't think of our things, our things or our, our family. We don't think of it that way. We, we think that, we think it's our stuff and we've gotta, you know, we, we've gotta, you know, I don't know, whatever it is we do with our stuff. But, we don't think of our, our kids or our money or our property or whatever as something that belongs to someone else that they said, here, take care of this for a while. It's still mine. But I'm trusting you to take care, but we don't we don't think of our i I certainly struggle to think of my kids that way. Um, but that is a reality. It all belongs to God there's there is so much too that as a um, as twenty first century Americans western culture people there there's so much that we have a hard time connecting the dots with this but this journey down down the mount of olives and up into jerusalem is it's all over prophecy it is i mean this is the coming of the son of man into the holy city it's a big deal this is i mean this is one of those you know we talk about prophecy a lot of times about how you know the the prophet stands here and observes what God allows him to see. And often it's the mountaintops. And and he, so he observes this event and this event and this event without realizing there's all these valleys in between, you know, of, of time that he couldn't understand. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And, and so th- this is one of those mountaintop events. Like, it, it's a big enough deal. Like, this is one of those events that the prophets were allowed to see and write about, that the coming of the Son of Man... And what they didn't realize, or, or, or some, some of them realized, but, but, but couldn't have fu- fully understood that there would be a coming of the Son of Man. And there would be an atonement for sin, and there would be all this space in between, and then another coming of the Son of Man. And this is the first one, and there will be another one. We're going to talk about that uh, this morning. But it's so significant as he comes into the holy city, he is heralded as king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet he would be rejected. This this next part here, verses 41 to 46, where he weeps over Jerusalem Um, in my in my. research on this passage i I was i was struggling a little bit on you know where where to go with it and what to what to preach and and i i found this really good quote by spurgeon that i'm going to read and and i went to look up that quote so i could like copy and paste it into a document and not have to hold this giant book up here and i thought i found it but in fact i didn't just find this quote i found he preached an entire sermon on that verse when he drew near and saw the city He wept over it, and I read through. I read through some of it and thought, "Oh man, I should just throw these notes away, and uh, I should literally just get up and read this. It's so good. Um, Maybe we'll do that someday." Uh, But I do want to read. I do want to read some of what he wrote here about Jesus weeping over the city. Um, he, He does talk about. There's basically three times that we see Jesus weeping. On three occasions, we are told that Jesus wept. The first was when our Lord was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw the sorrow of the sisters and meditated on the fruit of sin in the death and corruption of the body. And he groaned in the spirit. And it is written that Jesus wept. The third occasion was in the Gethsemane agony when a shower of bitter tears was mingled with the bloody sweat. we just read about that. The second occasion was here. At the sight of the beloved but rebellious city, our Lord in weeping over Jerusalem showed his sympathy with the national troubles and his distress at the evils which awaited his countrymen. He suffered a deep inward anguish and expressed it by signs of woe and by words that showed how bitter was his grief. He is the sovereign of sorrow, weeping while riding in triumph in the midst of his followers. Did he ever look more kingly than when he showed the tenderness of his heart toward his rebellious subjects? The city that had been the metropolis of the house of David never saw so truly a royal man before, for he is most fit to rule, who is most ready to sympathize. Jesus knew the hollowness of all the praises ringing in his ears. He knew that those who shouted Hosanna today would before many sons had risen cry, Crucify him, crucify him. He knew his joyous entrance entrance into Jerusalem would be followed by a mournful procession out of it when they would take him to the cross to die. Yet in all that flood of tears, there was not one for his own death. The tears were all for Jerusalem's doom. Even as he said afterwards, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Powerful, powerful summary of, of his, uh, some of his meditations on that. And, and it's so true that these, these very voices that are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, would a few days later cry, Crucify him. And Jesus knew that. And his, his mourning over Jerusalem, is, is we talked about this before a little bit. Some of it is that, that he knows. In fact, he, he told, uh, he told it in, we're, we're not going to look at all of it, but in, in verse in chapter, um, through chapter 21, he, he mentions a couple of times, um, in fact, in one place, he says, he says, this generation, he says, uh, here it is in verse thirty two of, chap- of chapter twenty one. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And what he was referring to there is the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen in 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 the year seventy. That uh, the. The. Uh, um, not sure what his rank was but but titus of rome would lead an army and besiege jerusalem and they would encamp around it from april to september through the entire summer starved the city out and the suffering that happened in the city the the i mean the, all the way down to all the way down to i kid you not children being stolen and cannibalized i mean awful Awful. I mean, the things the Romans, you know, what the Romans did was bad. What happened in the city was even worse. And Jesus knew this is only a, you know, a handful, this is 40 years away, not even. And he's heartbroken to know they're going to reject their king and these things will be the result. That generation was was punished in that way. In fact, if if you think of this Titus of Rome, when he came and besieged Jerusalem, he did it right at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right at the end of the Passover celebration. When Jerusalem, like we talked about the other week, would be packed full of people, packed full of Jews from all around the Roman Empire would have come to Jerusalem. And that's when he that's when he besieged the city. And cut off all the supply line, you know, you've already got too many people in there consuming all the food and water and then cut off anything else coming into the city. You you just, you, you put yourself in that mind and you realize that was another, another of those mountaintop things. That was one destruction of Jerusalem. Yet there would be another one that we read about in, in the book of Revelation when when the, the the city of Jerusalem is is destroyed and made new, but the coming of the Son of Man and how he is accepted, received, or rejected in that city has powerful implications. You know, the Pharisees thought that they were going to stay in Rome's good graces by putting down this this Jesus who challenged their authority, challenged Rome's authority. You know, he was. He was too disruptive. We're gonna, we're basically doing Rome a favor and doing ourselves a favor by staying in Rome's good graces by just killing this guy and getting it over with. And what they didn't realize was they were rejecting the king. And there would be terrible consequences for that. This thing where he says they, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Certainly they were unaware of what the consequences were, but there's a lesson in that too. If you've ever, (laughs) if you've ever dealt with a child who, upon realizing the consequences of their actions, says something to the effect of, well I never would have done that if I had known. But does that excuse what they did? Of course not. And in our, in our own lives, ignorance of the consequences does not excuse us from having to suffer them. You know, it's the whole, you've made your bed, now you have to sleep in it, sort of situation. We are not absolved or excused, uh, because of ignorance. And likewise, in this, um, in this scene, we see that, that Jerusalem was not spared. They did not know the time of their visitation. Um, I want to skip ahead here to a parable that Jesus tells, and uh, I'm going to try to move here. I also want I want to I want to look briefly after this at the next coming, the 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 last coming of Jesus to Jerusalem, and and see how how that will go differently. But he tells a parable here. He, he, so he, he comes in. He, he enters Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, and then he's. Uh, it says that you know, and he, he goes into the temple. This is actually the second time. I, I never I didn't realize this until studying this passage. Jesus actually goes into the temple and like chases the chases the merchants out twice. And this is the second time he does this. He goes and turns up the table and you know chases them all out. And then and then, you know, as the week goes on, he's teaching daily in the temple. And then every night he goes and camps out on the Mount of Olives. And he comes in early in the morning and people come to hear him teach. And then he goes back out outside the city, out on the mountain and and camps. Um, Because remember, the son of man has no place to lay his head. And so. So while he's there, the Pharisees, and it's interesting because these groups that don't really even get along, the Pharisees and Sadducees are like Republicans, Democrats, like, you know, they're like part of the rule. They're part of the Jewish government, but they don't like each other. They're split on whether or not there's going to be a resurrection. They inter- They interpret prophecy differently. These are not groups that get along. And yet they are unified in trying to trap Jesus into saying something so that they can punish him they would have both been both groups would have been represented on the council of the sanhedrin and so there was like clearly this coordination between it's kind of what they call strange bedfellows you know these are not normally people that work together um but nothing brings people together like a common enemy And so so it, it, there's a couple of exchanges here where he where his authority is being challenged. And so he addresses this with a with a, a parable that is so prophetic. Starting in verse nine, it says, and he began. Well, he, he says to, he says to the people, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush them. This is there is so much in this this passage here in this parable. And we probably don't have time to unpack all of it, but it's It's prophetic. About what would happen to him, it's, it's prophetic about how the prophets were treated. He's certainly referencing the prophets that came before, including um, including John the Baptist, um, but the prophets that came before that um, that um, prophesied the coming of Jesus. It's interesting, and Jesus Jesus points out this hypocrisy at some point. You know that you know, the, the Pharisees like to they like to lean on on scripture and they've got the, the law and the prophets and all of that and jesus says who are you kidding it was your fathers that killed the prophets your fathers rejected the prophets you read their, you read the words of the prophets and and you want to you want to act like oh yes these are our people he says yeah, no you're you're the same type of people that chased away and killed the prophets And so, and so we see in this, in this, um, parable, this imagery, and the vineyard seems to be, at least in, in one way, often there's multiple ways that you can, you know, a thing, something in a parable often represents multiple things. The vineyard in this parable can represent Jerusalem. It can also represent the kingdom more broadly, not just the city of Jerusalem. Certainly the wicked tenants represent the, the scribes and Pharisees, the, the people that would call for, um, for his crucifixion. And we certainly see that this was fulfilled. Um, this was fulfilled in the short term by the destruction of Jerusalem and in the offer of the kingdom by the, the gospel going to the Gentiles. I will, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that—that's a a, you know some prophecy about the the gospel being offered to Gentiles. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Of course, is talking about Jesus, Jesus who was about to be rejected, and yet He is the cornerstone on which the kingdom of God is built. There is mm, there's there's so much in that in that parable, and and such a We would be, it would be irresponsible to read that parable and think that the wicked tenants are only the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time. Because even now, the offer of salvation is on the table to everyone. And the king is coming back. And we do not want to find ourselves or our loved ones wicked tenants. I want to look as we, as we kind of wrap up a little bit, I want to look at, at chapter 21 verses, uh, towards the end, verse starting in verse 27. It's talking about the coming of the Son of Man. These are the things that Jesus was teaching throughout that week. And you can see as, as the week, it drew closer and closer to the end where he would be arrested and betrayed. His, his teaching becomes more and more, um, Prophesying the things that were soon to come. Um, Chapter twenty-one, starting in verse twenty-seven. Here he says, "And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory." Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then jump ahead to to verse. Uh, 34, he says, But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Such a warning. About making sure you're ready for that time of visitation. We see in we we see in, in First Thessalonians, uh, Paul teaches about the the rapture, um, which is I mean anytime you get into eschatology, you know end time stuff, it's real tough to figure out the timeline stuff. And you know we read about we clearly read about the rapture in First Thessalonians, but then like we don't read about it in Revelation. But that doesn't negate the fact that scripture does talk about it. And, and so we, we see we see that um, in verse 16 of chapter four, he says, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Jesus will Jesus will come back for his own. And after he does, he will ride into Jerusalem again. And it will be a very, very, very different outcome than the first one. I want to read this from Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. This is, this is a powerful passage. And I want to, I want to read this next to what we just read because we just read about the triumphal entry where he sits on a colt And rides into Jerusalem and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they kill him, just like in the parable of the wicked tenants. The father sends his beloved son to the to the the prized vineyard to the to the people who he has who he has given that vineyard to. And they kill him just like in the parable. But the story doesn't end there. The father is not done with the wicked tenants. And here we see the next time the son of man comes, it will look like this. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. (laughs) I get emotional reading that. Because when you look at how that Jesus is treated when he rides into Jerusalem on this colt, and they don't realize this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There are consequences to rejecting Jesus and not just consequences for the Jewish people in the first century. There are consequences to us today for rejecting Jesus. You see, it is important that we know the time of our visitation. Unfortunately, we can't know. We don't know when our time here is done, but we do know that today is the day of salvation. It should, it, should, it should cut our hearts deeply to know that there are people we love and care about that are not saved. People we, we love and care about who have not had their sins forgiven. Who, when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rides in on the white horse, will not be behind him robed in white, but in front of him about to be judged with the rod of iron. Uh, it's my prayer that anybody here this morning that it doesn't know for sure whether they're going to be behind or in front of that white horse. That we would get that question answered this morning. We must accept that our, I talked about this yesterday in, in, the, in the funeral service, we we have to accept and acknowledge that our situation apart from God's mercy is hopeless. Jesus is not the best way. He's the only way. We've got to believe that he really did die in our place and he really did rise again. But the last part is really important. We must call on God to save us. We must ask to be forgiven. It's not enough that forgiveness is available. We must ask for that forgiveness to be applied to our own sin. Are you ready? The wicked tenants will not go unpunished. Just because God is patient and has stored up his his wrath and holds it back for a time does not mean that he will do that forever. God will judge sin, and he will judge sinners. Let's be let's make sure we're right with God today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message from your word. Thank you for the benefit of a full and complete scripture that we can see the prophecy. We can see the partial fulfillment and we can see the end fulfillment. God, we can trust that when you say something will happen, it will happen. When you say that you will punish sin, we know that it is true. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that punishment on your own shoulders. God, give us a broken heart. Like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, give us a broken heart for the lost. Give us an urgency to share your gospel with them so that they can be spared like we were. We've been freely, freely forgiven. Help us to freely share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.